This episode is brought to you by the insurance agent I use for my own business, Doug Lynch, and his broker, Tracy Deerfelt, with the Nationwide Contractors Alliance. In the last year, I got to know Doug and Tracy as they were consulting for me on some questions I had for my own company. And after more than a decade in the business, I can confidently say I didn't even understand half the equation when it comes to general liability insurance. Confident, actually, that very few builders do. I had some big gaps in my understanding and even more in my coverage. Now, this is a risk-heavy business and you can't leave everything you've built, no pun intended, to chance. Make sure you have good protection, make sure you have reliable protection, and make sure the agents you work with have your back. Doug and Tracy are by far the best I've found in the business, or I wouldn't use them myself. They assessed my particular business, built me a customized plan around it, and now, of course, I sleep better at night as a result. Visit douglaslynch.com and nwcalliance.com to learn more about how insurance and other solutions can really work for builders. This episode, we're talking about best practices for your sales team and specifically comp structure. We'll be talking about some of the pros and cons between an external sales team like realtors versus an internal sales team, which would be employees. We will also be covering a few things like how to build a high performance team. So our guest to illuminate this for us and help us parse this subject out is Sean McDonald, who is a longtime friend of mine. I've known him for over seven years. He's a longtime industry executive. He's got 20 plus years in the business. He cut his teeth on the sales side. And his most recent post was as division president for Guillen Homes out of San Antonio, which is just about an hour south of us here in Austin. Now, Sean's currently involved in several startups in the home building industry. One is Land on Earth. LandonEarth.com will link to that in the show notes. But Sean is an entrepreneur type who has a deep knowledge of sales. So check this episode out. I think you're going to like it. So, Sean, let's set the stage here for uh, the rest of the conversation. I want to first differentiate between an internal sales team, by which I mean an employee and an external sales team by which I mean realtors. How do you see the pros and the cons to working with each? Yeah, absolutely. Great question, Jared. So uh, historically, um, I have seen really uh, external sales team, uh, mainly being realtors, really used um, more for a smaller smaller business. Um, it certainly makes sense for a startup when you don't have really a lot for your overhead budget. Um, and it also makes sense when you're you're doing low volume, um, oftentimes. But as you start to scale, to me, there's n- never been anything more powerful than having somebody that's actually on my team and who conveys a message selling one product. When you have salespeople that are dedicated to you, and that's where their income comes from solely, um, it's amazing how much more in depth they get with a buyer going through the process and helping to find different connection points to try to win that sale and win that buyer over when a, when a, 
uh, outside those persons with your team, obviously their goal is to make money. Not that they don't want to help people, but if the, the path to least resistance to making money is selling somebody else's product versus selling mine and they have the ability to do that, then that's oftentimes what I've seen happen. So it doesn't mean that it's an eth- I don't think that they're being unethical, but I just think by the byproduct of being a salesperson is you're trying to sell something. And so to me, the pros and cons really boil down to is that if you don't have the money to afford the overhead to have somebody on your team who's vested 100% in your business and in your product, then find good people that are, that are willing to partner with you that you trust on somebody else's team being a real estate agent um, and set the boundaries well with them on what to expect and what you're expecting from them so that you know you're getting the best message delivery and the best process that you can uh, have for your customers. Okay. I, I think that the assumption in the industry is that there's, if you're a smaller builder, that you're probably too small for an internal sales team. I think that's a assumption worth challenging. Do you uh, do you have any experience or have you seen examples where you've got smaller builders that have an internal sales team and, and they're successfully implementing that type of system? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that part of the reason why the smaller is, is because some of the other carries that go along um, with having an employee, such as insurance and things like that. But there's ways to handle that that is still affordable. Um, and if you're really trying to beef up having people that are, are not only 100% on your team, but that are positioned to grow with you, then one of those things you can do is how you structure your comp, you know, and something that I've, I've done in the past, and I've actually seen other builders do this, is because you've got people coming in when they're a commission employee, they're expecting to get paid when they sell something at some point anyways. And usually, except for um, very few situations that I've seen, most people get paid the majority of what they're earning at the end of the process. But when you're building, obviously, you're taking draws as well. And from a custom perspective, I think they actually even have an easier time on the, as a small builder staging commissions throughout the process that are in alignment with draws that now it's not hurting them. You're not trying to pull money from something that you're not getting money from. You're using your operational capital that's coming in for the build. So I think that's a, it's a good way to, to enter into that and actually bring a person on that's 100% committed to your, um, to your company. Great feedback. And I'll add one thing. I, I, um, I see so often that, that on these small size companies that the owner or the partners, one of the partners is the salesperson. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong at all with that. But w- what it does create, this is, I, this may be a term that's already in existence, but, but what I like to call it is, uh, uh, it creates a vocational owner. So in other words, if, if, if the goal so often, uh, is to get into business to to achieve a level of freedom where the business can run without you, which to me is really more of the gold standard because um, when business can run without you, then you've built something that is of more enduring value. And, and you can't do that if you're a quote unquote vocational owner where all sales are reliant upon you. Again, nothing wrong with it, but there may be, depending on your goal, a better way. And, and if you're wanting to step out of that role, then you, then you really do have to bring in somebody, uh, somebody be internal or external. And as you're, as you're doing kind of laying out the pros and cons to each. So I think it's just something that 
deserves additional consideration from everybody out there who's listening, who is an owner of a small contracting or building business. Yeah. And, and actually, I, I mean, I, I 100% agree with you, Jared. And I think that the other thing, just to add a little bit more to that, is that when you're starting up a new company, um, you, you really do want to wear all the hats for a while. Um, because one, nobody's going to have the same passion and drive and perspective of the vision and where you're going than you do. And when you're going to bring new people on, to me, you're training them out of a really solid understanding and execution, at least to some level of what that vision is. I, I work with companies, um, not just in home building, but also doing commercial. And I, I help raise money, bring capital to those companies. And even in, in raising tens of millions of dollars um, for an operation, I will bring the owner in on these conversations with new potential investors or, um, or, or uh, lenders, banks, and I will have them share the story from their perspective because nobody sells it like the owner does, in my opinion. And so I think that there's value in being immersed at that level, at least at a minimum early on. And the other thing is it gives you more substance to train your new people on once you start taking on actual um, salespeople. You've built sales teams uh, across many different sizes of home builders. And, and I think it's worth drawing on your expertise in that arena as well, in terms of uh, the, the ideal comp structure between uh, a production or semi-production builder versus a truly custom builder. Can you walk us through, and, and no detail is too great here. So if you can walk us through any of the details about what you view as the ideal comp structure between those, I think that's going to help illuminate some things for us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I've been a part of about every different comp plan and structure that you can think of and, okay. and helped, helped create a bunch as well. And, um, and obviously I've sold them I and I've done, I've been in this business for over 30 years now. So I, I was in selling for uh, a few years and experienced different comp plans. Um, you know, I think in part it, it comes down to um, a little bit in, in, in you're the market that you're in. Um, that does create a difference. Um, when you're trying to find really solid um, uh, hires, the, the market in some ways is going to create some boundaries for you and what you can put out there from a comp plan. What I've also seen is I've seen that custom builders oftentimes end up paying more than production builders. And obviously, obviously part of the reason for that is because of volume. You're, you're assuming that the, your custom salesperson is not going to be able to sell as many because you're not going to produce as many. So that probably makes sense. So your cost per unit actually goes up. So one of the things I, I guess I would look at, let me, I would say it this way. It depends on the volume that you're at and the culture that you're trying to create. Um, most of the builders that I've been with have a draw system, meaning that the, the salesperson is taking somewhere between uh, $1,000 a month to I've even seen up to as high as $6,000 a month in a base salary that is going to be paid back as they start having commissions come in. And I think that that program in itself, although a lot of builders use it, um, and I've seen probably the average is closer to about $3,000 a month is probably more realistic in the markets that I've been in, uh, in Texas and in Phoenix. Um, but the challenge is, is that you are also spending the money up front and you're expecting that person to perform and produce. And a lot of times they don't, 
whether they're not a cultural fit or they're just not good salespeople, you can be uh, six to $9,000 into um, a new employee plus all the other onboarding costs and, uh, and be looking for somebody to replace them. So there's some challenges that come with that. But if you can get a solid team that's on a draw system, you're, you're hopefully minimizing what your outlay is on a per employee basis until you get to the end where you get your, you know, obviously the, uh, the house closes. Um, so a draw, a draw system I see is very common across the industry. The one other con that I don't really love about a draw system is that it actually puts a salesperson in debt to you as a builder, which is also one of the things that many builders that I've worked with uh, and worked for, they love that idea. They want a salesperson in debt to them. So again, part of it is what is the culture that you want to create? Do you want salespeople indebted to you? And is that the primary motivating energy that you're trying to create around your business? Um, if it is, then it obviously works because a lot of builders do it. Another program would be spreading out the draws. So uh, what I've seen also and I've done in the past is give a portion of the commission um, at the contract. And maybe it's a small part. It might only be 500 bucks. It might be 1000 bucks, but it gives the salesperson something. And then give the next uh, part of the commission at um, slab. So once the house starts or when it actually pours foundation, the salesperson gets another another uh, portion of the commission. And so in those situations, I've seen a lot of times those uh, are higher, uh, sometimes just 3%. I've seen one builder actually doing um, 4.5%, which I think personally is excessive, is not necessary to have that high of a commission breakdown for um, uh, for somebody even on a custom, but make it something that you can budget out if your max is gonna be 6% between your, in, your, your on-site and an outside realtor that you're not exceeding 6%. But break it up over the, over the process and that with each of those commissions, there's a reason I think also that creates urgency and responsibility on behalf of the salesperson managing the process and helping to get the buyer to those certain milestones. And so what I think it does is it gives a one, a higher opportunity Two, it also gives motivation to manage process with the buyer, because the sooner they get the buyer to, uh, to the start, the sooner they get paid, the sooner they get the house, the house gets to the next stage of the process, which might be drywall, then they get the next one or uh, the, re the remainder could be at close. But either way, it gives the buyer commissions and pay that acts like a draw, but actually they're paid out in full by the time the home closes. My personal preference is that. I don't love draw systems. I never, ever have. I've spent the majority of my career on that. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't like the energy that's produced by salespeople actually being indebted to me. Um, I would rather help them produce from a different heart and a different mindset. So that's my two cents on that. But I know that uh, I'm, I probably stand alone compared to a lot of the big builders out there. Well, it makes sense to me. And one other influencing factor is the exact role of the salesperson in terms of are they are they just simply trying to get ink on the paper and then and then they're turning the client over to somebody else on the team, the builder or superintendent or or project manager, or are they staying involved through the whole process? Are they helping with selections or is there somebody else doing that? I'm guessing all of that um, is going to impact the commission structure as well. And I'm guessing, I, I'm curious your, your thought on this. It seems like there's not a, a best way to advise builders on, well, your salesperson should be involved up to this point and not 
after this point or should be involved in the, the selections process or shouldn't. In other words, it seems like it's it's very uh, individual to the builders, but I would welcome you to, you to challenge me if you feel like there's an optimal structure you've seen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, what you're talking about is based upon, again, really builder philosophy and, um, and what they want the customer experience to look and feel like. Not just during the process, but also do they have a customer for strategy or a customer for life strategy to where they're really and not just anticipating the sale, but they're anticipating more sales from that sale. So um, everybody talks about um, being able to create a really great experience for customers. But I know for a fact and anybody that's been out shopping for a home knows for a fact that's not true. Your, your experience with that builder is every bit in line with what the philosophy of that builder is as it pertains to their own people and the rollover that that happens to the people that are coming in the door. And so to me, part of when you're building a company, and even if you have a long-standing existing company, um, we're at a, at a date and time in, in history where people want more transparency than they've ever had before because they've got access to more information. It doesn't make sense to try to um, uh, hand people off and expect somebody else along the way to fill in the gaps for them and not have somebody that's going to help be kind of an overseer of that process. That's my opinion on it. I think that you're, you're better off having somebody that quarterbacks the process. And because typically people aren't, don't want to communicate with five people along the way. They need an advocate. They want somebody that they know they built a relationship with because relationships are really, really important. I think, again, they're even more and more important that people have a trust that's established along the way. And so being able to have somebody that literally takes and holds the person's hand, not just through the building process, but even to a degree after the building process is the best way not just to help create the happiest customer, but to also leverage that into more natural referral sales that are going to actually help you to make more money on the sale and make an easier process and purchase with the next buyer. What about the comp structures as they relate to an inventory spec home versus uh, a true custom home? How do you separate the sales structures or the commission structures between the two? You know, it's interesting because an inventory home, I mean, whether you're um, a custom builder building an inventory home or you're a production builder building an inventory home, you're either way, you're both spending money on inventory and putting that out there. No matter how you look at it, you, you've got a carrying cost to some degree. And uh, if it doesn't sell right away and you have a greater liability. And so um, on that side, I think that comp structures that, that really cause focus around that inventory sale. Um, and there are multiple ways that you can do that. I've seen tiered structures happen too. So one way that, is, is that uh, you can handle it is that your to-be-bill sales have a different commission structure than your inventory sales. Um, a lot of times inventory sales actually have a lower margin on them for a builder than uh, or an inventory sale has a lower margin than a to-be-bill sale. And so what ends up happening is, is that builders inevitably will um, pay a higher commission to not only their on-site salesperson, but also an off-site salesperson to get that sold, which in part contributes to the lower margin, but also 
those options that usually go into an inventory home are more modest because you're trying to make sure you just hit market. You don't over uh, price your house. You don't underprice your home. All of that is a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, trial and error until you get that figured out within a neighborhood. But I think that when you're compensating people on your team at a premium for a home that you're taking a hit on, that at, sometimes I've seen houses sit for six months to a year. It might have been the wrong choices and the wrong decision, but it also has a lot to do with the salesperson's uh, prioritization of that home. How well is it being maintained? Are they taking people out there? Are they showing it? Are they setting up meetings out there? Um, there's a lot of things, obviously, that make an impact on a buyer's ultimate decision on a home. And that frontline salesperson has everything to do with that success, even down to the fact of these options are the wrong options in the house. So if I'm going to pay somebody out there and I'm taking a hit on a home, I, I want to know for a fact that my salesperson has prioritized that above all else, that they're getting that one off our books. We're not carrying it because obviously it's going to affect our margin overall. And so one suggestion might be is that on inventory homes, stage your structure for commissions on how quickly they sell them. So uh, one of the builders I was with actually structured it to where if you sell a home by frame, you, you get a half point higher than the standardized commission. If you sell a home before it's finished, you get your normal commission. As soon as the house is done and delivers and it's 100% complete um, and construction is no longer doing anything in that house, then it drops a quarter of a point. And it bottoms out at one and a half percent or whatever as a, a lower percentage of whatever your, uh, your normal commission is. But the intention in that is, is that it keeps it top of mind for the frontline salesperson always. And then the other part of it, too, is that if you have to discount it as a builder, that you're not paying a premium on commissions while you're discounting a home. So I, I think that either way, whether you're a custom builder or your production builder, you need to have a compensation program around your inventory that motivates the focus of the inventory and motivates the um, even the, the, the maintenance of the inventory. Because oftentimes that's the thing that gets left. Somebody walked it two weeks ago, hasn't been in a sense and didn't realize that, you know, a cat got it in the garage and died. So it's, it's a lot of emphasis on daily walking that and then prioritizing compensations over uh, the appropriate management as well. I'd certainly pay more for a quicker sale. Nothing keeps a builder up at night like an inventory home that's sitting on the market. Absolutely. Tell us about some of the biggest traps that people can fall into when they're building a sales team. Um, I mean, honestly, the number one trap that I that I think has haunted uh, uh, every sales manager and division president that I've ever worked with is just hiring the wrong people. Um, you can have half of a good sales team that will carry you just enough and have another half that's not producing, but that's the thing that literally, um, you know, really hurts you on communities. It hurts your overall performance. It hurts your ability to go and get new neighborhoods. It hurts your ability to get, um, uh, maybe investors. It's, it's, it's something that you end up spending. You can have one or two people on your team that from a leadership standpoint, you spend the majority of your time. And it, and it might not just be training. It could be attitudes. It could be gossip. Um, it could be all kinds of things that all the way down to just simply uh, being unethical or unmotivated. But to me, the number one rise and fall for any team is the people. And there needs to be extra time and extra eyeballs and people that are involved in that interview process. So I guess I would say is that 
if you don't have a really, really comprehensive and solid way of filtering people coming in, then that needs to be number one priority because your company is always going to rise and fall with people. The other thing too is that referrals don't always work. Um, salespeople refer other salespeople, but that doesn't mean they're going to be a great salesperson. I mean, what I found in this business and being it as long as I have is that people lose their job at one builder and they get picked up at another builder. And I always wondered why it is, and I've done the same thing. I try to get enough information to understand why they left, but they're salespeople. They're going to tell you that they made the choice or something happened that just wasn't right for them. And a lot of times they are being moved around from builder to builder because they don't sell or they're not doing something right. And so I actually started trying to find people outside the industry for a period of time. I don't think that's a, a whole, uh, that's an, a, a program that anybody should adopt like um, as their standard and, and don't hire veterans. But I do think that there's a, a balance between having a healthy blend of people that are new to the industry and veterans. And partly because it allows you to bring in talent that you can grow and build um, that doesn't have some of the habits that maybe your veterans have. But make no mistake, in my opinion, when you start getting the crunch time, it's your veterans that you go to and like, hey, listen, help me to figure out a plan to go get this house sold or to pick up this many sales over this next month because we're behind. They're going to typically have the network and the know-how to pull something together. And so I think that, again, it really comes down to making sure you got the right people on your team. Now, on the other side of the coin, what about the qualities that you've seen in the highest performing sales teams? Any common fabric? Well, uh, you know, what's interesting is that, um, you know, there's always those teams that kind of everybody gravitates to. You know, I mean, we have a small enough industry where... I can call probably uh, five different leaders across the city and they can tell me who, in their opinions, are the strongest teams out there. And uh, when you get a leader that's strong enough to lead with genuine, sincere and uh, care for his team, um, that makes an impact. Somebody that's a coach, but that's not a... Uh, micromanager. And it's interesting because I hear that from salespeople and I've heard it for, you know, uh, a couple of decades now is that I don't want to be micromanaged. I don't want to be micromanaged. They want help. They want help getting their deals done. And, but they don't want to be micromanaged on how to do it, which salespeople need training and they're the ones that resist the training the most. So what I found is that teams that seem to excel start with finding the right people and they motivate them well. So compensation program is a part of that. Um, how you run your sales meetings is a part of that. Having a leader that's literally accessible to the team is a part of that because a lot of sales leaders came up from selling and they were great salespeople, but they're not great sales leaders. And so when they get into the leadership role, they actually don't know how to replicate themselves very well at all. And so finding somebody or an outside source that knows how to help boost morale, uh, drive motivation, but also equip the team to be able to do the things that they need to do. You know, I've been uh, probably one of the worst in the past at overloading the team with too much information. I was, you know, uh, even as a, as a sales manager, I wanted data. I was eventually a division president. And that might have been what fueled some of that as my mind was always around what are we producing and what is the data? Salespeople need the data, but they don't need it the way the division president needs it. 
And they don't, they're not running our financials. They're influencing our financials. And so salespeople need to be met from where they are motivated. They're emotional people. They are relational people, which is strengths that they have. That's a gift. Um, a lot of them are very empathetic. And so part of their motivation comes from somebody who can relate to them from their frame of reference. If you've got a sales leader that is all about the numbers, he's going to appeal to probably about one or two people on the team, depending on how large your team is. And so being able to understand that there are core ingredients that get a team going and constantly reminding the team of what you don't have, where you're not at, what you need to be at is not a motivator for salespeople. But a lot of what you said comes back to what Jim Collins calls that level five leader, that, that leader that that looks to uh, influence a cause and an organization greater than just his own, his or her own ego. And so what I hear, I mean, I, I heard I heard several things, all of which I think are are fantastic pieces of advice. But but one real common thread through a lot of that is excellent leadership on behalf of, of the leaders of the company. Absolutely. Sean, as always, whenever you and I get together and talk, I learned something new. I really appreciate your time. I'm glad that we finally got you on to get you introduced to our audience. I think we can do some more stuff in the future to uh, let them let them get inside that Sean McDonald brain a little bit more. <laughs> well, man, I'm so grateful for you inviting me. I'm thrilled uh, to do this. This is um, it's a lot of fun. And any uh, anytime you're, you're willing to allow me to come back, let me know. I'd love to be back. All right, Sean, let's do it again. Thank you. 